your grace, forgiveness, compassion, kindness, steadfast love. You love to show that. And you show that in the greatest way possible by sending your eternal Son. For in this way you love the world. You sent your one and only Son. That all the ones who believe in Him, they will not perish. No, they'll have eternal life. They'll have a relationship with you, Father. Thank you, glorious God. Into Acts chapter 27. If you're visiting with us, if you pull out <clears throat> that black Bible and the chair in front of you, go towards the back and find page 116. 116 you'll find Acts 27 we're going to do the whole chapter this morning we're coming close to finishing the book of Acts I've got two more messages in Acts and you'll also notice we're going to do Acts 29 but there is no Acts 29 yeah there is you'll find out that will be on May 15th. I'll preach that, Acts 29. I really enjoyed preaching through Acts. It's been a chore. Luke's Greek is very difficult to translate. So, it's been really hard to translate this. I translate about five times every week. So, to try and make sure I'm keeping up the speed with my Greek. And Dr. Luke is definitely an educated man. He was an educated man. I look forward to, I think uh, Daniel finished up the class, and we're going to go into 3 John with the adult class, which that'll be fun because John's Greek is so much easier, so that'll be nice to do that one. Anyways, Acts 27, again, I'm, we're going to do the whole chapter because it just flows together. It's the shipwreck. And Paul was sent to Rome, and there's a shipwreck, so let's read, and then we'll do our study. <clears throat> And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, notice the we, Luke is together with Paul. They proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adamitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. And from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived Osnidus, uh, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete of Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. And when considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul admonished them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. 
And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix. Not the city, port. A harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Urakiro. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And when under the shelter of a small island called Clouda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. 17. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in, in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men. For I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. 27. But when the 14th day, excuse me, 14th night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors surmised that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found 20 fathoms. And a little farther on they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, and they let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. 33. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is, the today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing it out the wheat into the sea. And when day came, they could not recognize land, but they did observe a certain bay with the beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left, left them in the sea, while at the same time uh, they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel ground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none should swim away and escape. But the centurion, 
wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Let's say, for example, you're going through a difficult time, major trial or a tribulation in your life and your spouse your married spouse says to you I I know you're going through a difficult time I know this is hard for you I want you to know how much I love you that that would be uplifting that would be encouraging to you or just take it uh, another member talking to you another Christian is talking to you and find out you're just struggling and they say the same thing too. They say, hey, I care about you. Hang in there. Hey, let's pray together. I want you to know how much I love you. That would be encouraging, right? But, what if your spouse says to you, instead of that, says this, I know you're going through a difficult time, so I want you to know the best thing for you right now is to know how much I love me. What would you say? Or another Christian says, I just want you to know how much I know you're going through a difficult time. So to know, I know without a shadow of a doubt that the best thing for you right now is to know how much I love me. I don't know about you, but I would think my spouse had totally lost her mind. The best thing for me is that you love yourself? What? We, we chuckle we laugh it's ridiculous but not so with God as we come to this portion of Acts just do it be who you are let God use you to fulfill his mission what we see in this chapter is this trusting God's passion for himself is for our best trusting God's passion for himself that is for our best God has a passion for himself God loves himself God loves to glorify his name and that is the best thing for us Let me put it in a few statements for you. We must come to the place in our lives where we embrace this truth. It is for our best God has a passion for Himself and His glorious name. In the midst of the horrible circumstances life can bring, this attitude, embracing this truth, will one, help us to see His big picture creating patience in us. Two, give us full, satisfying joy in Christ. And three, it will teach us to trust Him. Because we're so confident He loves us and that He will always keep His word. Why does God keep His word? Because if He doesn't keep His word, 
he will cease being God. God has a passion to make sure his name is glorified so he will be faithful to himself, which means he will be faithful to you. He'll always keep his word. Paul understood that. Paul got that. Think about it. If God's love for us made us central, then he would pull us away from the one who is infinitely and eternally satisfying himself. He doesn't love you because of you. He loves you because it makes much of him. I don't get that. I don't understand that. Put it this way. We're nothing. What do you give to somebody who has everything? What can you give to someone who has everything? Nothing. Does God owe you anything? No. So when He pours out His love and grace upon us, it's not because we're worthy, it's because He's gracious and compassionate and a God who loves to give. It glorifies Him, not you. I said to you, in my prayer and in other instances, God loves to show His goodness. What, what did He say to Moses? When Moses says, show me your glory, He says, I will let all my goodness pass before you. And then when He saw him, he declared, the Lord, the Lord God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving thousands. That's the type of God we're talking about. So, if God's love for us made us sensual, then it will pull us away from the one who's so satisfying. He wants us to be satisfied with himself. Or as it said, quote, Therefore God's love for us labors and suffers to break our bondage to the idol of self and focus our affections on the treasure of God because God is our treasure. God should be your pleasure. God should be your desire. So that means anything that happens in our lives is for us to embrace this truth that God is a passion for Himself. Everything that happens in your life is that we will understand that God has a passion for Himself and we must make much of Him. God has a passion for Himself. How do we know? What is this? Oh, I don't have that up there. Never mind. God has a passion for Himself. How do we know? Because He will faithfully fulfill His Word. He can never not fulfill His Word. Like that double negative. He can never not fulfill His Word. He, if He stops fulfilling His Word, He stops being God. And who's the one who emulates this for us today? Who's the one who shows this in our passage but Paul? The reason Paul... I mean, look at this in the middle of a shipwreck and this guy is like a stone 
He's just standing strong. He's solid. He's like a rock. Nothing is affecting him. Such solid patience, satisfying joy, total trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he embraced the truth that God has a passion for himself and his glorious name. And he knew God was going to do what he's going to do to bring that about. Paul knew that. He embraced that. He believed that. Paul is our model disciple who trusted God in the most trying situations and then he pointed others to God's trustworthiness and their need to trust His Word. He's the model for us. Last week we saw that Jesus had called Paul to be a servant and a witness. He is the model servant. He is the model witness for us. He was the epitome of faithfulness. Steadfastness. The whole chapter screams his focus on trusting God in, in, in all circumstances. Which is the message to us. Are we trusting God in all of the circumstances of life? Are you trusting God in all the circumstances of life that you're in right now? One day you're fine. The next day you get a phone call and the doctor says you have cancer. One day you're fine. Next day you get a phone call. You get your salary cut. One day you're fine. Next day this happens and now you were looking for this job and now it's not happening. One day this, and then all of a sudden this. That's how this works. God puts us in these situations and He wants us to come to a place where I'm bringing all these things into your life so that you will know the best thing for you to understand is I have a passion for my name and you should have a passion for my name. I mean, is this not the essence of the gospel? The gospel is coming to grips with the fact that there's no hope without God's glorious greatness and grace towards sinners, right? When a sinner comes to God, God becomes central in their life. What's the problem with someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ? Jesus is not central to them. Jesus is not important to them. Booze, sex, money, sleep, food, whatever it is, that's important to them. This passage symbolizes the message of salvation itself. Jesus becomes first and foremost. That's the essence of the gospel. And it's the essence of our community as Christians so that when we as individuals, when we respond in this way where we understand that God is a passion for Himself and that's the best thing for us, it's addicting. It affects the whole community of faith because we all see our need for God's grace in our lives and our need to embrace this truth that we need to make much of God. And it's just, it's, it, it, it's, it's like a disease. It just takes over a church. So pe people have such a passion for God and His glory. And then what happens, we'll talk about this in a few moments, what happens is evangelism takes place. Because you have such a passion for God, you're like, 
I got to tell you about Jesus. That's what happens. There's a passion that's there. Because you understand God has a passion for himself. Let's walk through the verses. I'm going to take larger chunks, as we can see, since we have 44 verses. But kind of see, kind of uh, in, in statements, kind of, we'll walk through this passage. So first, we'll see when life seems routine, it just seems normal. Normal life. Interesting how Luke, who's not a sailor, he gives a consistent, detailed explanation of what's happening. The voyage from Caesarea to Rome. Eyewitness. He's right there. The journey from Caesarea to Rome under the best conditions would take about five weeks. But now it's autumn. Like September-ish type time frame. 80-59. So there's a set set for Italy, verse 1. Here's this centurion named Julius. They got on this ship along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus joins them. Julius understands Paul and, and has some respect for Paul. You're going to see him has such greater respect for Paul by the time we get to the end of the chapter. He allows him to see his friends. And they follow the route, practically hugging the coast here in Palestine. They're going up here, then over to Asia Minor, then over here more to Asia Minor, then dropping down to Crete. Uh, look at uh, what verse 6. This is in turn found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. They sailed slowly for many good days. In verse 7, they began to sail into the wind. So bad the trip should only have been taken. A trip only taken them a couple days, but it take, took them more. This ended up being a problem. Notice it says in verse 8, they ended up at a place called Fair Havens. It was a bay that was half open to the sea, so it didn't provide much protection. Verse 9. Time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over the Day of Atonement. So we're about now late September, maybe early October, just before the winter months. Sea travel stopped November 11th, 15th, and then and then it started up again in mid-March because of the winter months. You know, short days, long nights, snow, rain, all this stuff happening. They didn't travel. Unless you want to make a good amount of bling-bling. You want to make a lot of good money, you would take wheat from Alexandria and go to Rome. And if you made it, they'd pay you big. But normally people would not be traveling at that time. So it's getting pretty dangerous. Notice what Paul says. Men, verse 10... I perceive the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss not only of the cargo and the ship but also our lives. So there was some ship meeting with the head guys. Paul's there. And it doesn't necessarily mean he had some type of prophecy from the Lord just probably from his own experience. Based on my experience it seems this could be bad guys. We probably shouldn't be traveling. Instead of listening to Paul the centurion was more persuaded by the captain, the ship owner, verse 11. Twelve, it wasn't suitable for wintering. They wanted to try and make it to Phoenix. Phoenix was 50 miles up the coast. Normally it would take about a day, maybe even a day and a half. So they, would, they, they saw this wind, it came up, verse 13, a moderate south wind came up. So they said, hey, this is our chance, let's go for it. 
concrete would be used as a shelter in case of trouble. Notice, it's just normal life. Just things happening. Routine. When life seems normal, you're just doing what you always do each day. Then what happens? A severe challenge or opportunity unfolds and you become desperate. Verse 14. They're rushed down from the land of violent wind. That Greek actually means typhoon. It was known in the Greek Latin as a northeaster or Eurokilo. It was so bad, notice, they lost control. They had to let themselves be driven along. In verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Clada, so it's, it's taking over. And yet, they moved past this small island. They got a little bit of respite, so then they started taking emergency measures. They took that lifeboat, they scrapped it down, they were probably taking ropes and going under the, the boat and trying to tighten everything up. Bouting down the hatchets, whatever that means. They were afraid of hitting Sirtis. Sirtis had um, sandbars near the North African coast. It was actually a graveyard for ships. They were in fear that they were going to run into this place. 18, it got worse. The next day, violent storm tossed. They started jettisoning cargo. The third day, they threw the ship's tackle board overboard. Tackle overboard, excuse me. Meaning they were in dire, dire straits. They're really desperate now. But then it got worse. Verse 20. Sun, stars, didn't see any of this. No small storm was assailing them. They had no way to determine their location. They had no idea where they were. They had no instruments to try and figure out where they were. No gear, no stars, no sun, which means what? No hope. Look at verse 20. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. That's it, we're done. And it was so bad, verse 21, they were hardly eating. They had no appetite. Maybe because they were seasick. Or maybe because they were so stressed out. Or maybe it was both. See, friends, it's at this place that God brings us. This is the place a sinner needs to come to. So desperate that without God showing His grace, they are completely hopeless. Are you here today and see your desperate need for Jesus Christ? Do you need to see your desperate need for Jesus Christ? That's what God does. He brings things into our lives so we will see that we must desperately go after Him. And He's not our focus. Everything else is. Are you here today? And you need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Well, how about you, Christian? This is the place God brings us in our lives as disciples of His Son, frightened to the point where all hope is lost. So that we see that all our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And that's when He wants you to make much of Him. 
And that's what He wants you to get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on to Him and what He's trying to do. Which leads us to the next point. The call for a Godward response. To focus on God. A God focus. 21 through 26. Notice how Paul steps in. In verse 21. Men? I told you this was going to happen. You know, he didn't do that. I told you. and I know. But in a gracious way, I told you. You ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incur this damage and loss. Yet, now, I urge you. And there in, in your Bibles it says, keep up your courage. In the Greek, it's this. Be of good cheer. Be happy. Be joyful. He says it two times. Injury and loss, it will take place, yes, but only for the ship, not of us. No one will die. Be of good cheer because the promise is that not one of us will die. The basis is, this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, verse 23, stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar Day, D-E-I, Delta Epsilon Iota. You must, this must happen. And God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. I must stand before Caesar. So all of us on board are going to be saved. Interesting too, the nuance of when the angel says, God has granted that all of those with you will be saved. You know what the nuance is? The nuance is that Paul was praying for them to be saved. Paul was praying for them. Asking God to spare them. Therefore, 25, be of good cheer, once again. Why? God will spare us all. Be of good cheer. Why? Because I believe God's word. We must run aground on an island. The ship will be destroyed. This is nerve-wracking, but this is comforting because Paul trusted God's Word. Here is a symbol of Paul's message of salvation. Here is a symbol of salvation itself. Not that this story is an allegory, because it's not. It really happened. But it symbolizes our desperate need for the Savior and the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Gospel is the only one who can save us. You trust in His Word. That's the essence of the Gospel. You repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ, the living Word. And it also symbolizes our need as Christians to trust in God's Word because He will be faithful to His promises. He has to be faithful, else He will cease being God. God will be faithful to you because He's faithful to His promises because God is faithful to Himself. God has a passion for Himself. Do you think God saves you for your sake? Exodus chapter 36. It's not for your sake, Israel, that I'm going to move. What does He say? 
the Lord says, it's for the sake of my name that you have profaned. In other words, the reason, Christian, that God will be faithful to you is because what God is most concerned about is being committed to His name. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. God is jealous for the glory of His name. God is jealous for the glory of His name. He's not here to make much of you. He's here to make much of Himself. That's why we're here. So He is glorious. So He shows He's gracious. So He shows He's kind. When He doesn't owe us anything. And that's why he's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word because he acts for the sake of his holy name. If he didn't, he would cease being the perfect, awesome, glorious, weighty, holy, righteous, true, just, unfathomable, loving, merciful, gracious, patient God. That is the God you serve. And that is the God you belong to. Why in the world would God waste his time with you? And yet he does. That's so merciful. That's so gracious. That's, that's so compassionate. That you can have a relationship with the one who's created everything. So that he can show how awesome that he is. That's why. That's why he does it. Okay, but um, the challenge or opportunity thickens and then we become frantic. 27 to 32. The plot thickens. Two weeks after leaving Fair Havens, they're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 27. About midnight... The sailors think they're nearing land. Now they're starting to get really nervous. They're getting frantic. They take measurements. In other words, they throw a line overboard with a lead weight. The first was 120 feet. The second was 90 feet. So they're panicking now. So they threw the anchors overboard and they wish for daybreak. Well, some sailors, verse 30, some sailors, they got the idea, hey, we're nearing land. Let's get out of here. They would lower a lifeboat into the sea and they would try to escape, but they try to make a run for it and, and making it sound like they're trying, oh, we're just letting down some anchors on the side of the ship. That's all we're doing, yeah. But they're really kind of trying to con everybody. Paul picks up on this, notice. Verse 31, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. So what the soldiers do? The soldiers, they cut away the ropes of the ships and let it fall away. That was their lifeboat? They cut the ropes and they let their lifeboat go away. Yeah, great idea, guys. Thanks a lot. That's brilliant. Whoa, we'll cut the rebuild. Oh. Guess we're not going to use that boat. <laughs> yeah, you think? Morons. The plot thickens now. 
we become frantic. Are we going to embrace this truth that everything that comes into our lives is so that we will have a Godward focus that God has a passion for Himself? Things begin to squeeze. And you feel trapped. And you feel stuck. What am I going to do? But then as we have a Godward focus when this is up happening, now others are led to have a Godward focus. We end up sharing that with others. It's not, Paul is just an amazing guy. Look at verse 33. Days about to dawn. Paul encouraged them. Today's the 14th day. You guys been cussing. Watch. You're going out eating. You've taken nothing. I encourage you. Take some food. For this is your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. You guys, not, not to say they haven't eaten at all, but they were probably eating a little bit here, a little bit. They're not really eating though. He's saying, look, it's going to be all right. Not a hair in your head will be harmed. Why? God will keep His word. Look at this guy. He's amazing. He's like a pillar. He's like a huge, huge mountain in the middle of this storm. Here is Paul. Bam! God's going to keep His word. Paul was calm and at peace. In the middle of a storm? Yeah. He was. But this reflected his consistent trust in God and his promises. And no better way to reflect his calm, trustful confidence in God but by taking in his gracious provision. I mean, what this it shows, he says, look, let's eat. It's like that's the stupidest thing you could ever come up with, Paul. Why? Because we're going to die. What do you want to eat for? Right? Paul's like, no. We're good. God's going to keep his word. Let's chow, man. Let's, let's get the grub out. And then notice what happens in the next part, verse 35. And having said this, <laughs> he, he, he's the example he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it, began to eat. And all of them, you see where it says we're encouraged? Guess what word is used there? The same words that Paul used earlier, they were all of good cheer. They were happy. What a leader and a servant to a bunch of pagans! Some say he had the Lord's Supper. This was no Lord's Supper, okay? They're not having the Lord's Supper. But it was no normal meal either. It was a meal that gave thanks to God for protecting them in this horrible event. And you see Paul as a mountain in the middle of the storm. And then he shares this Godward focus with these pagans. And then they begin to think that way because notice what happens. <clears throat> they were all of good cheer and they took food they started eating and notice he says all of us in the ship 276 persons 276 souls this who Paul was ministering to and he so affected them verse 38 and when they had eaten enough the, the word is they were all filled 
They, they didn't just eat a couple of servings. They just went to town. This was like a fellowship meal, man. Let's go. Get in line. Let's pile it on. Is this amazing? In the middle of the storm, this is what these guys are doing. They're eating to the point of being filled. They showed they were believing God's promise. And they trusted Paul and the word that he spoke so much so that they took the grain and threw it overboard because they trusted. They said, you know what? We don't need this anymore. We're good. Here's Paul. Faithful, gracious, encouraging, exemplary man who cared for others, whether they were saved or unsaved in matter. And yet, what an amazing, gracious God who has a passion for himself, so much so, he will keep his word. Always. Which leads to the next point. God's passion for himself in doing his word. It, it happens now. In verse 39 and 44, it happens. His word comes to pass. The shipwreck comes. Daybreak. They couldn't really see if there was land, but they see a bay with a beach. They didn't know where they were. So they decided to take a chance. It's going to be tricky. They didn't know Malta, which was, it was actually, Malta is just south of Italy, of the boot. But it wasn't on the sea route, so that's why they were unfamiliar with it. So what do they do? Verse 40. Cast off anchors, loosen the ropes, hoist the foresail. Boom! We're moving along. Bam! Then they strike a sandbank. The ship got stuck. It ran aground. The stern began to be broken up. There in the text it says, the end of verse 41, by the force of the waves, it's not in the text, but the idea is that as they ran aground, they're, they're stopped, and then the waves are boom, boom, beating against the boats to the point where it's going to break up and be destroyed. Well, the soldiers had a great idea. Let's save ourselves. Let's kill all of them. Soldiers plan to kill the prisoners. None of them should swim away and escape. Well, not to mention the fact, if any of the prisoners escaped, they'd be liable. They would have to die as soldiers because it's their responsibility. So they're like, we don't want to die. We're going to knock them out right now. But notice the centurion. Remember I told you earlier? The centurion who now had such high, high respect and regard for Paul. He did not allow the soldiers to carry out the execution. The execution. Notice how Paul saves all these guys again. Instead, commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first, get to land, the rest follow. Anything, if there's a plank, there's a board or anything, just get to land. Let's go. Jump overboard. Let's go. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Boom. There it is. God kept his word. God always keeps his word because his character is at stake if he doesn't. God will always act for his people because his glorious name is at stake. He will show his glory. In the midst of the horrible circumstances that life can bring to you, it's this attitude, embracing the truth that it is for our best that God has a passion for himself and his name. 
having this attitude where one, help us to see his big picture. It'll bring patience. Two, it will give us full satisfying joy just like Paul had. Be of good cheer. Three, it will teach us to trust him because we're so confident he loves us and that he will always keep his word. Will you trust him? Will you understand that he says to you, I love myself and that's the best thing for you right now. Father, you have a passion for yourself and your love for yourself for your glorious name. That's exactly what we need. Because you love yourself and have a passion for yourself, you have a passion for your people. Because you're a God who always keeps your word. You love to show that you're gracious and kind. So we relish in the fact that you've shown us grace. We do not deserve it. We don't deserve anything. Thank you. Praise you. You're awesome. You are the perfect, awesome, glorious, weighty, holy, righteous, true, just, unfathomable, loving, merciful, gracious, patient God. There is no one like